Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Monday, July 26, 2010. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Joining us today is Christopher L. Carroll, MD, FCCM, who is the lead author of an article published in the May issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine titled, Emergent Endotracheal Intubations in Children, Be Careful if It's Late When You Intubate, which discusses the risks of emergent endotracheal intubations in children. Dr. Carroll is an associate professor at Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford, Connecticut. The citation for this article is Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, 2010, Volume 11, Number 3, pages 343 to 348. Thank you for being here, Dr. Carroll. Thank you for having me. Would you please start by giving us an overview of your study? Sure. Um, As you know, elective endotracheal intubations are usually performed in the operating room. And that's usually a very safe procedure for children. In the intensive care unit setting, uh, children are frequently intubated for emergent reasons because they're in respiratory failure or heart failure. And although there have been several reviews of adult populations looking at risk factors uh, for emergent intubations as well as complications of these intubations, there really haven't been uh, any uh, large studies looking at these risks in children. And children, for a variety of reasons, can may do worse during emergent intubations. Uh, Children have uh, age-related differences in their oxyhemoglobin dissociation curves, uh, their oxygen consumption, and their pulmonary mechanics. And children may be at more risk for these reasons of having complications such as desaturation or um, uh, changes in uh, their hemodynamic status. So we conducted a review for a two-year period between October of 2005 and October of 2007 in our hospital. We have a 122-bed freestanding children's hospital um, in Hartford. And we looked at all the intubations that were done during that period. And we categorized these intubations as either being elective, um, and then uh, we further categorized them as being either urgent or emergent. And so uh, elective intubations were ones where we defined these intubations as um, uh, being documented in the medical record as being elective or that were not, and were not associated with any uh, respiratory acidosis or desaturation. So there was no clinical reason noted to intubate these children other than the fact that they were about to go to the operating room or they needed an MRI and they needed to be uh, sedated, deeply sedated for the procedure. And we excluded those children as elective intubations. And then for the other children, we categorized them either as having an emergent intubation or an urgent intubation. And the emergent intubations were those where um, the, there was documentation of the intubation as emergent by the reporting nurse, physician, and or respiratory therapist, um, or there was activation of the code blue status. We, uh, in our retrospective review, we looked at a variety of 
of sources to find out this information. We looked at the charting from the respiratory therapist, the charting from the nurse, the charting from the resident physician, and the charting from the attending. And um, we found that there was, uh, uh, looking at that great variety of charting, we found that there was, uh, that we could usually get a pretty good picture of what happened during that period. We defined complications uh, as desaturations, bradycardia, hypotension, vomiting, uh, esophageal intubation, and uh, we um, used vital sign cutoff values taken from the uh, Pediatric Advanced Life Support Manual. And documentation of a complication from a single individual, be that a physician, a nurse, or a respiratory therapist, um, we, was sufficient to determine the presence of that complication. So in other words, if a respiratory therapist said that the patient had a desaturation to 40%, um, we would uh, believe that respiratory therapist is potentially uh, ratting out the complication for other people. We, we felt that maybe people weren't so uh, forthcoming with their own complications, but looking at the charting from everyone, we could really uh, get a, a better picture of, of what really happened. Then we looked at those, we looked at those patients and we found that during this period there were 193 intubations that were performed in 142 children. Uh, 56 of these intubations were elective, and so we excluded them. And so we were left with 137 intubations in 103 children. Of these 137 intubations, 77 of these were emergent and 60 were urgent. And then we looked at risk factors associated with, with these intubations. Most of our intubations were in children admitted to the intensive care unit for an acute respiratory disease process. 72% um, were uh, for children with um, acute respiratory distress. Of this 72%, um, there, uh, a little more than half of these children were intubated for bronchiolitis, um, about a third for pneumonia, and uh, Nine children were intubated for acute asthma. Of those uh, remaining children, there were um, ten children that were admitted that were uh, admitted after corrective surgery for congenital heart disease that required intubation, and uh, a smaller number of children with uh, acute seizures, uh, sepsis, and two children for trauma. We found that. Emergent intubations were significantly more likely to occur off hours uh, with an odds ratio of 2.0 on a 95% confidence interval of 1.1 to 4.1, and that these emergent intubations were more likely to be associated with a complication uh, with an odds ratio of 3.0 and a 95% confidence interval of 1.4 to 6.1. Specifically, the emergent intubations were significantly more likely to be associated with a desaturation um, or, or hypotension. Interestingly, emergent intubations were associated with fewer number of intubation attempts. Um, however, this did not quite reach statistical significance. When we looked at the complications that were associated with these intubations, 41% of all of the children experienced at least one complication during intubation. This, this number is a little higher than is reported in the medical literature in adults. And 
when considering that, we felt that it probably is due to the thoroughness that uh, our research assistant, John Corsi, looked at uh, the complications in the medical record. He was quite a detective in looking at all the charting from everyone. And so if the respiratory therapist made a note that there was a desaturation, even if the attending and the nurse said there, there wasn't, um, they would count that as a complication. Um, these complications were uh, associated with um, the, whether the intubation was emergent, um, whether the uh, child was admitted for uh, a cardiovascular disease, and whether there were three or more attempts at intubation. Um, and when we looked at these in a multiple logistic regression analysis, the, uh, the best-fitting model was one that included emergent intubations, off-hours uh, intubation, three or more attempts at intubation, uh, smaller endotracheal tube size, and admission for cardiovascular disease. It's interesting that uh, off-hours uh, attempts were more likely to be emergent, um, and yet were associated with fewer intubation attempts. It seems a little um, almost paradoxical that the emergent intubations had fewer intubation attempts but had right. a higher complication rate. Right. I think that... Um I think that that speaks to I think that that uh, that speaks to an important um, point about this study. When this study was conducted, the coverage for um, critical care was provided um, for attending uh, physicians. Uh, the reason we chose the period to end in October of 2007 is that um, starting a few months after that, we moved to a coverage model where now all of our we have ICU attending physicians in-house 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Before that, we did not. The off-hours coverage was provided by resident-level physicians. And um, I think that uh, at night, when resident-level physicians were responsible for the care, it may have been that some of the impending respiratory failure was not recognized as early as it might have been had there been an attending physician there. And then when these patients needed to be intubated, the backup uh, for these patients was uh, in-house anesthesiologists. And I think that the anesthesiologists were less likely to let the resident-level physicians intubate these patients. They would just do it themselves. Now, why those patients would have more complications, I think it's because uh, they were more unstable by the time they needed to be intubated. So perhaps having in-house coverage and having an ICU attending physician observing these patients might reduce the, uh, the amount of complications as well as the, uh, as well as the incidence of emergent intubations. It would be interesting for you to repeat this study after you, now that you have 24-hour in-house uh, intensivist attendings and see if that finding is in, in, in fact the case. Well, that, we actually are. Um, the, starting in October of 2007, we had uh, in-house attending coverage on weeknights uh, after October, in November of 2007, I guess that was. And then we had full 24-7 coverage starting in April of 20, uh, 2008. So we are repeating this study where we're, looked, we're looking at the data from um, April of 2008 through um, April of 2010. So we'll have a two-year period uh, before 24-7 coverage, which is 
this article we're talking about now, and then a two-year period after 24-7 coverage. Um, but we're still collecting that data. Hopefully, we'll have it ready in time to submit for next year, for this year's SCCM, but uh, we'll see. Uh, it's interesting that even though complications were common in children who were intubated emergently, they were not associated with prolonged duration of mechanical ventilation or prolonged uh, PICU stay. Would you like to comment on that? Um, yes. I think that complications... Uh, I think that these complications were relatively uh, minor in terms of their long-term effects. I think that that a patient's length of stay and duration of intubation is much more related to their underlying disease process and why they got intubated rather than any complications that they uh, exhibit, that they, excuse me, experience during intubation. So, for example, if someone uh, drops their oxygen saturation to 80% during intubation, that probably means that they did not uh, experience any long-term adverse effects from that because once the breathing tube was in, their saturations came back up quickly and um, uh, their length of stay was much more related to their, their acute illness than their complication. Were any of these <clears throat> emergent or urgent intubations um, subsequent to unintended extubation? Uh, that's a good question. The, um, yes, there were some that were associated with um, unattended extubations. There weren't a lot, but there were a few. We typically have about um, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 uh, unintended, uh, unplanned extubations a year. And of those children, about half of those end up being uh, reintubated for some reason. So I sus- they're probably about as many as um, as many as ten, maybe as little as five. Do you have thoughts, um, knowing what you know about the experiences at your institution, about how we can make these urgent or particularly the emergent intubation safer for our pediatric patients? Well, I think that I'm biased toward uh, the in-house coverage model. I think that that potentially is a good. Uh, model for our children. Another uh, another way to get around that, however, however may also be the um, the care model that's provided at a number of institutions, but not our own, where they have a, a rapid response team uh, that any any person can call. The parent, uh, the bedside nurse, the resource nurse can say, "I'm worried about this child. Will someone please come and take a look at it?" So it's a it's a step short of calling a code where someone um, who's more experienced in critical illness can come and look at that child and say, yes, I think maybe we need to bring that child down to the intensive care unit for more monitoring. Uh, I think potentially that might reduce the number of these emergent intubations and uh, perhaps also improve the quality of care that's provided for this patient population. The 24-7 attending coverage, um, I agree with you, likely is in the best interest of patient safety, but um, is going to be challenging for us to accomplish in the, given the manpower limitations um, currently in this country and probably other areas. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I would agree. I think um, we, have a, we have an 18-bed ICU, and uh, we have seven full-time uh, intensivists, and uh, 
for example, right now one of our uh, intensivists is out on maternity leave and another one uh, um, is out on medical leave and uh, covering with five is very, very difficult. And uh, I think there may be options in terms of um, uh, physician extenders of some sort, um, advanced nurse practitioners or hospitalists to cover uh, in-house. I think that that is certainly an option for some institutions. Um, I, it's, the reality is that it's, uh, there are not enough pediatric intensivists to cover a 24-7 model for all institutions. Um, and uh, I, don't, I don't have any solution to that either. I think that that's going to be a decision that's going to ma- need to be made above both of our pay grades uh, <laughs> by other people. I would agree with that. Um, do you think with that higher level of supervision, be it um, perhaps optimally a pediatric intensivist present 24-7 or perhaps an advanced practice nurse um, who is experienced, that um, while these urgent intubations are likely going to continue to be needed, with more experienced eyes, some of the emergent intubations would be done at the point at which they're urgent, and hence the patient is uh, less unstable and less at risk? That, that's exactly, that's exactly um, what I was trying to get at. I think that, uh, that there is always going to be children who need to be intubated urgently. But if you can uh, recognize their critical illness uh, earlier and intubate them in more of a controlled fashion, rather than before they get into an, um, some sort of extremist, I think that that uh, should be our goal, that uh, there will always be uh, the child that, um, that has, uh, for example, um, uh, a seizure or um, and then hypoventilates after their, um, their anticonvulsant or a child with bronchiolitis who um, just is not responding to non-invasive therapy, who needs to be intubated in uh, somewhat of an urgent fashion uh, because children will deteriorate more quickly than adults will. Um, the, uh, our goal should be to reduce the number of, of these uh, emergent intubations that occur during either code blue events, um, which uh, I really think we should try to we should be trying to um, reduce the number of these code blue events and emergent intubations as, as much as possible. Um, I think that, uh, that earlier recognition will really improve outcomes. I agree with you. If I may speculate on a point you had made earlier about uh, fewer intubation attempts at night, uh, likely because the anesthesia attending came and um, was not interested in allowing the resident to attempt intubation, perhaps if we had a higher level of supervision uh, or expertise and had more of the intubations urgent rather than emergent, that might also serve the education of our residents and fellows well by perhaps creating more opportunities for them um, to learn to intubate. Yeah, I would would agree. It's, It's difficult to difficult to get the numbers of intubations necessary to um, to train uh, residents as well as to keep uh, our skills uh, as intensivists and I think that that if um, if we're in-house we would be more likely to let the residents do an intubation and 
you know, we would be there to closely supervise them and to make sure that if if the patient started to desaturate to intervene before they get um, down to uh, to 80% or before they start to develop bradycardia as a result of that desaturation. And I think it does provide an important um, opportunity for education. I think there'll always be the need for more creative educational uh, endeavors, uh, you know, um, simulation centers, uh, potentially uh, supplementing in other ways uh, in operating rooms and elective intubations. Uh, I think we'll always need to do that to train our residents and fellows to intubate. But, uh, but I think this would provide an important opportunity. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make today? Um, I think that uh, I think that you already brought up my other point about that we're going to be repeating this study to see if 24/7 coverage actually changes outcome. The um, so far we have not uh, there have not been a lot of studies that have looked at definitive improvements in outcome from in-house intensivist coverage. It would um, our institution had a, an opportunity for a natural experiment where we went from non-in-house coverage to 24-7 coverage, and uh, we're looking at that to see if it's changed any of our outcomes, and hopefully uh, hopefully we will. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Carroll. Thank you. We have been talking with Dr. Christopher Carroll from Connecticut Children's Medical Center in Hartford, Connecticut, about the article, Emergent Endotracheal Intubations in Children. Be careful if it's late when you intubate published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in May 2010. This concludes our podcast. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. Registration is now open for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress, the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Celebrate four decades of society leadership and help chart the course for the future of critical care medicine. This year's Congress will take place January 15th through 19th, 2011 in San Diego, California, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress for more information or to register or you can speak to a customer service representative. Experience all the hands-on workshops, cutting-edge educational sessions, and thought-provoking plenary sessions Congress has to offer. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material, and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is Margaret Parker, MD, FCCM, guest podcast editor for pediatrics. Dr. Parker is director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook University in Stony Brook, New York. She also is a professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University Medical Center. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at s ccm.org or info at sccm.org.